good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to the book of Romans, the book of Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. We're going to continue our study in, in Romans 10 this morning. We're going to really be looking at the verses 14 through 17. Uh, but as we get started, I want to give us a little context. And so I want to read verses 5 to 21. So once you get there, I would invite you to stand. Romans chapter 10. We're going to read in beginning in verse 5. We're going to read down to verse 21. want to remind you that we believe that these words were given by inspiration of God are the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, and the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let's pray. Father, this morning we have one hope, and it is that all those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We have abandoned all other hope of righteousness. We cannot ascend, we cannot descend, we cannot muster up enough works, we cannot muster up enough faith to save ourselves. 
only you can save. And so, Father, this morning, as we look into your word, I pray that you would encourage the saint, that you would equip us for the work that you have for us that's a response to the work that Christ has already done. And that this morning you would convict the sinner. And Father, that as we leave here today, I pray that we would leave marveling at the beauty of Jesus Christ, at the glory of this gospel that we proclaim, and that we would be quick to give a reason for the hope that is within us. Lord, I pray now that as, as I preach your word, Lord, that, that I would only say things that are true, that you would accompany the preaching of your word by your spirit, and that we would be encouraged together as the body of Christ here at Mercy Hill. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I've always been fascinated in, this, in, in reading the scriptures about the breadth of ways in which, and the breadth of words that people use to call upon the name of the Lord. I mean, you could do a quick study and look through all of the ways in the Gospels and even in the Old Testament and in, in, in Acts where the people have, have called upon the name of the Lord in, in various ways, using various words. I think of, of um, the thief on the cross who said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. This calling upon the name of the Lord. I think of the father of who, whose son was healed, and he, he told Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. I think of the Philippian jailer who, who sees the, the experience of, of the apostles and, and, and desires to be saved. And there are myriad ways in which, in which individuals in the scriptures call upon the name of the Lord. And what we understand when we look at these ways is that the Lord is, is, is the one working in their hearts. But the, the major thrust of Romans chapter 10 is answering this question, what must I do to be saved? And Paul really answers that question with, if you want to be saved, you call upon the name of the Lord. That's verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he's already told us in verse 6 that you cannot ascend to heaven because Christ has already come down. And he says in verse 7, you cannot descend in, into the abyss because Christ has already risen from the dead. He says in verse 9, there is actually nothing left for you to do but to believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he astoundingly says in verse 12, that there's no distinction, that both the Jews, those who are entrusted with the oracles of God, the Israelites, those who have been given, uh, as he would say earlier, earlier, adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, the, the Jews and the Gentiles or the Greeks, those who are not a people. He says, there is no distinction. They both submit to the same Lord because he's Lord of all, because he bestows his riches on all who call him. And we see the breadth of salvation in this passage. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He bestows his riches on all who call on him. And we also see the conditions. He doesn't say everyone will be saved. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
And so we answer the question, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, call upon the name of the Lord. But in this section afterwards, in verse 14 through 17, Paul decides to break down what it looks like. Last week, Lawson used the word mechanics, what what the mechanics are leading up to someone calling upon that name of the Lord. What does it look like before someone calls upon the name of the Lord. And we've, we've, we've studied the theology for, for months through the book of Romans about what happens in someone's heart for them to call upon the name of the Lord. But Paul gives us just another glimpse, maybe another side of the coin here in verses 14 through 17 about what happens preceding someone calling upon the name of the Lord. And we, we see that there in those first two verses of this section. In verse 14, or first two words, he says in verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? He says there is one hope. There is, there is one means of salvation, and it's to call upon the name of the Lord. And he says, and how are they going to do it if they have not believed him? My plan this morning is, is to really break down, beginning in verse 17 and moving backwards, what Paul is saying in this text. Uh, as, as good uh, Americans, I guess, we, we, we tend to search for a thesis. Maybe it's our, uh, our training in school or whatever it is. But I think in verse 17, the thesis is given of this section. Paul says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so I want to work back through from this thesis back through the text because Paul really asks a series of rhetorical questions that get deeper uh, as, as he goes. And so I want, to, I want to work from verse 17 back in the passage to see what Paul is saying happens before someone calls upon the name of the Lord. So verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That word so there points out to us that this is, this is a summative statement. This is the statement that seems to be wrapping up all that he's just said since verse 13. And so he says, so this then, this therefore, faith comes from hearing. I love here that Paul seems to sum up this, this, this word faith. He seems here to sum up what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. And he says, it seems what Paul is saying is to call upon the name of the Lord is in fact saving faith. He's using these interchangeably. And we know this from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So if you look, uh, or if you, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2, Paul says to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the synonyms there that Paul uses. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, called holy in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, so it, it would seem that to sum up what it means to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to have experienced saving faith. This is not just a mere mental assent to the facts of the gospel, although it's not less than that, right? And this is what he's saying. They they can't believe if they haven't heard. If they don't know what the gospel is and believe that it's true, they'll in no way abandon all hope of any other righteousness and, and cling to Christ. So it's not mere mental assent to facts, although it is, it is assent to facts, 
What does he say? He says, faith comes from hearing. What is this faith? This faith that saves, this calling upon the name of the Lord that saves is a staking one's life on. It's a, it's a burning all other bridges. It's putting all eggs in one basket. Faith, saving faith, calling upon the name of the Lord comes from hearing. And Paul seems to understand and be teaching that there is a type of hearing that leads to faith. We hear things all of the time, but he says there seems to be a special type of hearing that works faith. This, this type of hearing where the words are not merely heard, but rather that their object, Christ, is heard. That his words are believed and not only believed to be true, but the heart of the hearer is changed as they hear these things and they, they begin to trust Christ. He says, so faith, calling upon the name of the Lord, this abandoning all other hope, this putting all your eggs in one basket comes from hearing, this true hearing. And what is it that we hear? He says, in hearing through the word of Christ. Now, I love the word that Paul uses here for word. I know it's confusing, but stick with me. The word word here in Romans 10 is not the word Logos, which is the word we would typically think about in the Greek that, that is used for word. That's the word that we see in John 1. In Romans 10, he uses a, a specific word that means the spoken word. And so he says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the spoken word of Christ. Literally the spoken word about Christ. Well, what is the spoken word about Christ? I want to make sure we have our categories in order before we look into, into the rest of the section. The spoken word about Christ, we could sum it up in one word, right? The gospel. And so faith comes from hearing. Calling upon the name of the Lord comes from this hearing that is, that is a hearing that not merely hearing the, the words that are said, but hearing Christ and understanding who he is and believing in what he has done. And hearing comes through the gospel preached. So calling upon the name of the Lord, that saving faith, happens when one spiritually hears, truly hears the gospel of Jesus Christ and believes. Now, once we have those categories in mind, I think Paul more deeply explains what he's been saying here in verse 17 in verses 14 through 16. So if you're taking notes, if you want a roadmap, uh, that's typically what I like is a roadmap. And so if you, if you want note, uh, a roadmap, the first point, if you will, is the gospel of Christ. And then we're going to look at the gospel of Christ preached. We're going to look at the gospel of Christ heard. And then finally, the gospel of Christ believed. And so first, we look to the gospel of Christ. And we're going to work backwards here through this text. In verse 17, Paul says that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. What is the subject of what the Christian hears and believes? And I think if we're going to know what it means to call upon the name of the Lord, what it means to believe, to have saving faith, and we have to understand what it means that he says the gospel of Christ. What exactly is the gospel? Well, Paul tells us elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. He says that the gospel is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. 
R.C. Sproul said that the gospel is the proclamation of the person and work of Jesus Christ plus how the benefits of that work can be appropriated to us by faith. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 15. What is it that, that the person and work of Christ has done? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. We see the person and work of Christ and how this person and work are applied to us, that he died for our sins. And so we ask the question, church, what is the gospel? Well, Paul tells Titus that it entails the hope of eternal life, promised before the world began. It's the story of the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, becoming flesh and dwelling, tabernacling among us, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What is the gospel? It's the promised son of David who according to the scriptures was born of a virgin, proclaiming you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, yet being perfect on our behalf. It's the perfect one, Emmanuel, born of a virgin, fulfilling all righteousness by obediently walking to the cross, bearing the weight of the sin of his people on the cross and raising three days later for our justification. The gospel is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And that son the father gave laid down his own life for the sheep. It wasn't taken from him. And before he died, he proclaimed, it is finished because he isn't like the priests of old who stand daily offering sacrifices which can never take away sin. Rather, when he offered a single sacrifice for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. The gospel is that you were created by the God of the universe. You have by your unrighteousness suppressed the truth. You stand before God altogether unholy and unrighteousness and he becomes your righteousness by faith because while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The gospel is that this perfect, holy God planned to save a people before the ages began. That he set his love on that people, elected them to salvation, sent his son who suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He called effectually each of those he set his love on. He justified them. He glorified them. And to borrow Sproul's term, how does Paul tell us that these things are appropriated? He says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone, the worst of sinners, the most self-righteous of Pharisees, fornicators, liars, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, murderers. Paul, do you really mean everyone? And he says, yes, I really do mean everyone. Why do we need to rehearse the gospel? Because I'm afraid that we will read the words, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, and we will not be sufficiently astounded by how amazing that reality is. That we have done nothing and we get everything. That he has ransomed enemies and made them friends. That he has turned slaves into sons. That he has purchased an eternal future for us where we merely get to enjoy him forever in an indescribable place. It's incomprehensible. And Paul says, it's ours by faith. And I just want to take this moment to say, friend, if you're here today and you are apart from Christ, if you've walked through these doors and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and you've just heard these truths about Christ, I would plead with you to abandon all hope of saving yourself. To believe Christ's work on your behalf, 
to call upon his name for mercy and grace because he is mighty to save. And this gospel is true. And it is as beautiful as it seems and more beautiful. And so in in order for us to understand what Paul is saying when he says, how are they to hear without someone preaching? Or how are they to preach unless they're sent? Or how are they to believe if they haven't heard? Or how are they to call upon him if they haven't believed? We must understand what the gospel of Christ is. But we move from the gospel of Christ to earlier on in this section. So we have seen the gospel of Christ, but second, now we see the gospel of Christ preached. If you look at verse 15, Paul asks this question, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? What do Christians do with the word of Christ? I think first what we see, and it's, it's, uh, it's very simple, preachers preach. I know, it took me a while to come up with that. Preachers preach. Look at verse 14. It says, how are they to, uh, verse 14, how are they to hear without someone preaching? I love that in, in the original language here, it literally is someone preaching. It's not, your version may say a preacher, but it says, how are they to hear without someone preaching? And I love that because some argue, if you, if you look uh, at, at several different commentators, many of them argue that this text is primarily about elders, pastors, overseers, evangelists, apostles, those who seemingly preach as a vocation. And while I understand this view, and I do think there are applications from this text for that view, I do think that that's not primarily what Paul has in mind here. After Jesus rose from the dead, he commanded all of his disciples to Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And I think this is primarily what Paul has in mind here in Romans 10 when he says that preachers preach. Spurgeon said that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. And I would say in the sense of verse 15 that every Christian is either a preacher or an imposter. He says, preachers preach, that there's someone preaching. And what do they do in verse 15? Well, they come to preach. This is the Greek word caruso. It means to herald, to proclaim, to preach. I love this word because it gives the sense of of these heralds in in Rome and in Greece who would come with an edict from the king. They would come with the king's full authority. And right, that's what Jesus says in Matthew 28. He says, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. A herald is one who proclaims, one who declares the edicts of the king. It's one who carries the weight of his authority. It's one who boldly proclaims the will of the king. And he says, how are they to hear without someone preaching, without someone boldly proclaiming the will of the king? And I love this because a herald There's nothing special about a herald. It's just a herald. But the herald carries the word of the king. And so a herald can boldly give a command from the king. And we go forth with the gospel, not merely with an invitation, but with a command. When we go forth preaching the gospel, why did he choose the word preaching here and not the word conversation or not the word discussing or not the word sharing or not merely the word speaking? Why did he say preaching? 
He said preaching because we go forth with a message that demands a response. Jesus would say in Mark 1, repent and believe the gospel. In Acts 2, we hear the the command, repent and be baptized. Acts 17, Paul says, now God commands all people everywhere to repent. We go forth with a message that says, Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. All authority is his. He's building his church. And we go forth with a command. As Paul would say to the church at Colossae, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so Paul says that preachers preach. But he also says that preachers are sent. I love here that even even as Paul seemingly gets practical with the truth that he's just shared from the rest of chapter 10, we still cannot escape the sovereignty of God. If you look when he says, verse 15, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? The fact that we are sent means that there must be a sender. Charles Hodge said, if God wills the end, he also wills the means. If he wishes the Gentiles to be saved according to the prediction of his prophets, he wishes the gospel to be preached to them. In his sovereignty, he has, he has decided, chosen the mechanism for the gospel to go to the world. He is the sender. Christ sent us out. Go, therefore, with his authority, making disciples of all nations. But notice there is a sender and the sender sends those who believe in him to preach. That there's, there's, no, there's no one exempt here. He says, we are sent to preach. There's a responsibility. Matthew 9, Jesus would say, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. And I love this because Paul doesn't get specific. And I think it's because we see a breadth of ways that we are sent to preach. You are sent to preach to your children the good news of Jesus Christ. We're sent to preach to our neighbors. We're sent to preach to our coworkers. Some of us are sent to preach to the nations. We're we're sent to preach. The reality is not that some of us are called to preach. The reality is, is that we are all sent to preach. That there is no imagination in which we can say, well, I'm actually not called to preach the gospel. If we're not called to preach the gospel, then we have not called upon Christ to save us. And so what we see here from this text is that he says there is a sender, the sovereign God of the universe has sent his people to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? Because our God is worthy of of worship on every square inch of this earth. That there is nowhere where he does not deserve to be praised. And the church is the only mechanism that God designed to do this. I've really loved lately thinking about uh, Acts chapter 10. If you have uh, your Bible open, I would encourage you to turn there. It's it's a fascinating passage in Acts chapter 10 where uh, an angel appears to this man named Cornelius, who's a centurion of the Italian cohort. And so this angel comes and appears to Cornelius. And so it says, um, I'm just going to read a little bit of it, starting in verse 3 in Acts chapter 10. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. 
And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with, with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now I love this because Peter is eventually, in, in verse 34, and we'll look at it in just a second, is going to come and preach the gospel to Cornelius. An angel came to Cornelius and did not preach the gospel to him. He didn't forget to. It wasn't a, it wasn't a matter of the fact that he just, he didn't, he didn't remember that he was supposed to share it. It's because, as Peter would say, there are things in which angels long to look, and the gospel is one of them. They haven't experienced it. And so what does he do? Well, he, he has this angel who comes and appears to him, and, and he sends his men to find Peter. And what happens when he finds Peter? If you look at verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The angel didn't preach the gospel to Cornelius, but Peter did. We, as the church, are proof that this message is true that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He could have chosen any way to preach the news of his gospel. He could have written it in the skies. He could, have, he could have dropped it from any number of things. But he chose us, the people he has saved, to go seeking brothers and sisters. I mean, what a privilege. The church is the only mechanism that he designed to take the gospel to this disobedient and contrary people, as he says in verse 21. But preachers preach, preachers are sent. But finally, he says that preachers have beautiful feet. And this is strange. I have not found feet that are beautiful, personally. It kind of grossed me out. But if we're looking at Romans 10, Paul says, and how are they to preach, this is verse 15, unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How? This, this is not a question. He's not asking how beautiful are they. He's, he's exclaiming how amazing and how superlatively beautiful the feet are. How amazingly beautiful. When we think about the word beautiful, we could really boil this down to thinking about how welcome they are. 
right? When we see, you, you, you have these experiences, right? Where you see someone that you love and that you, you long to see and you see them uh, after a long time and you say, how beautiful is the coming of this person, right? How welcome is this person in my midst? I love to see them. He says, how beautiful, how superlatively, amazingly beautiful or welcome these feet are. Why are they welcome? It's because they carry the messengers of the good news to their destination. The feet are considered beautiful because of the message that they're transporting. How beautiful are the feet or the the coming, the arriving of those who proclaim peace of those who proclaim good news, quite literally, who proclaim good news of good things, who proclaim peace, wholeness, welfare. How astoundingly beautiful and welcome is the coming of those who proclaim our welfare and bring good news. In Isaiah 52, Paul here is using this verse. That's what he's quoting here in verse 15. He's using this verse to connect God's promise of freedom from Babylonian captivity to what Christ accomplished in the gospel. Jesus would say something very similar in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus uh, stands up to read a scroll from Isaiah. And it's this, this verse that says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Paul says this this freedom from Babylonian captivity is a shadow compared to the era we live in now. Is a shadow that pales in comparison to what Christ has done. We, we look back at Christ and we say, look at the freedom that he has provided. And the question is, why are the feet beautiful? Why do we have beautiful feet? Those who preach the good news have beautiful feet because we, in fact, preach the good news because we have not been sent to go forward and simply proclaim the law. We have not been sent to go forward and to say simply, you are sinners, there's no hope. That's not good news. We've been sent to proclaim the good news. We've been sent to proclaim the gospel of grace. We've been sent to proclaim the reality that all we like sheep have gone astray, each to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We preach good news, but not only do we preach good news, we preach good news with joy. And just as a means of application, we betray the truth that we speak of when we speak of the gospel dispassionately. We we betray the truth when we speak of the gospel dispassionately. What do I mean? Well, there's a temptation, I think. We believe in God's sovereignty, and so we we can get to this point where we say, well, you know what? If they're going to get saved, the Lord's going to save them. And it's not really about what I say, which is true. But that doesn't mean that we go forth dispassionately. Spurgeon said, you can never think too much of this great salvation. When you desire it, prize it as a beggar might prize gold. When you have it, grasp it as the pearl of great price. We preach the good news with joy. I remember when I went and bought Sarah's engagement ring. 
Uh, I was 20 years old. It was, I was like a sophomore in college, and my parents were scared that if I had it on my person, that I would just go ahead and do it. And so they made me keep it in a lockbox at their house, and uh, they had the key. And when I came home uh, on various weekends, I would just, I would say, Mom, can I have the key to that lockbox so I can just go, I just want to look at it, you know? And it, it, it always amazes me to look at a, a diamond ring and to see, you can look at it from one side or look at it from the other, or you can look at it in a certain light or in another light, you can look at it. Uh, from the top. You can look at it from all of these different ways and, and you see the beauty of it in so many varying beautiful ways. And I think this is the command that we have from, from Paul is what, what do we go forth proclaiming? We proclaim the gospel. And you can look at the gospel in so many different ways. You can see it from, from beginning to end. You can see it in, in, in merely these these. 33 years of Jesus' life and ministry before he died and was raised and went, went to, to, to reign forever. You can see it in, in, in the facets that Paul speaks of, right? That we who are dead in our sins have been raised to new life in Christ. We can see it in all different ways, that the God who created the universe and everything in it, the one that we spurned, the one that we, that we have disobeyed with all that we are has saved a people, not because of anything good we've done, but because of his own grace and mercy, and we can look at all of these different sides of the gospel. And, and the, the, the command here is not to get just one picture of the gospel and just to, just to canned preach it over and over and over again. He says, we preach the good news with joy because yesterday we were dead, but we have been saved from the just wrath of God that we deserved and we have inherited God himself. And so, yes, we look at this gospel and we marvel at the beauty of it. And we can't help but tell everyone about it. That's what it means to have beautiful feet. But Paul goes on here. And he seems to answer the question, what's the point of our preaching? It's not merely to preach. He says, number three, that the gospel of Christ is heard. So we have the gospel of Christ, we have the gospel of Christ preached, but then we have the gospel of Christ heard. If you look at verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Why are we so adamant about preaching? Because people need to hear the truth of the gospel to believe it. The gospel of Christ heard is important because Paul says that they will not believe if they have not heard, and they will not hear if no one is there to preach. And I think Paul has in mind two types of hearing. We, we alluded to this at the beginning, that there is a type of hearing that leads to life, and then there's a type of hearing that leads to death. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul works this out. He says that we, we, we have the fragrance of Christ that to those being saved is from life to life and to those perishing is from death to death. That there is a hearing that leads to death. Paul has already discussed this in Romans 9, uh, really in verse 30 to, to chapter 10, verse 4. He says that the Jews have stumbled over the stumbling stone. They have heard over and over and over again, but they missed it. In 1 Peter 2, we have very similar language. They speak of the cornerstone Christ being a rock of stumbling or offense for some. 
And when we go forth preaching the gospel, we know that this is a possibility. But we also know that much like the chain in Romans 8, we see a chain here, that there will be some who hear the word of Christ, who hear the gospel of Jesus, and who believe it, and who call upon the name of the Lord. The type of hearing that leads to belief. It's what Jesus would say in Mark 4 when he is is speaking of the parable of the sowers. Let him who has ears, let him hear. There is a spiritual hearing, and we talked about this in Romans chapter 8. It would seem that the spiritual hearing is the effectual call of Christ. That the gospel to you and your own experience for many of us was once lifeless and empty. You might have thought it foolishness. You might have thought it silly. You might have thought it a myth. And then one day you heard it and you heard it differently. Not because the message was different, but because a change had been wrought in you. One day you heard it and you heard it differently and it no longer spoke death to you. It spoke life to you. And there is a hearing, this type of hearing, this effectual call of God that leads to belief. And in Mark 4, Jesus actually speaks of this when he's talking about the parable of the sowers. And he says that, that there, are, there, there is one sower and one seed. But it's not, it's not that there are different sowers or different types of seed. In Mark 4, it says that a sower, verse 3, went out to, to sow. And he, as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. And the birds came up and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and thorns grew up and choked it and yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The sower and the seed were the same. It was the soil. It was the heart of the one hearing that changed the outcome. There is a hearing that leads to belief. He says, those who call on the name of the Lord have been given ears to hear the gospel of Christ. That's what he's saying in Romans 10, that they can't believe unless they hear. But if they hear rightly, they will believe. And if they believe, then they'll call upon his name. They must hear. And I think there's an urgency here that we, we must not forget about, that they must hear. Growing up, I always heard of this, this myth this myth of this man who was somewhere where the gospel had not been, who was innocent, and he merely just didn't hear the gospel. There is no one innocent. And I want to be clear here and serious at this moment because there is no one innocent. And there's a dangerous heresy from old that says, well, if they never hear the gospel, then they're exempt from judgment. And Paul would say in Romans, as we've studied over the past several years, this can in no way be the case. That everyone born, his federal head is Adam. That we are sinners from the womb. That we love our sin. That our just end is condemnation and destruction. And rather than arguing about the intricacies of that, I think what that leads us to is an urgency that there is only one hope. 
and they will not hear of it unless someone is preaching. There is one hope in Jesus Christ. And he says, how will they believe if they do not hear? And I think finally, as we close, number four, he says, the gospel of Christ is believed. Gospel of Christ believed. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Or moving up further, how will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? What does the spiritual or the true hearing result in? Well, I think we see here in this passage a juxtaposition of two types of hearing. We see a hearing without ears, if you will, if you look at verse 16. There's a hearing that, that is without ears, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. They have not all heeded it. They have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? These who have heard, but they did not have ears to hear, and they have not believed. This but here, it carries a weight. This glorious reminder that, that there are those who are being saved, they're, being, they're calling upon the name of the Lord, and they're believing in him. They're hearing the truth of the gospel. He says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. While some have believed, while some have called out to the Lord, many have not. And why does he say obeyed here? Maybe your version says heeded. Why does he say obey? Because we go forth, remember, we go forth commanding. We go forth saying that belief is as serious as obeying because the command is from God himself. He says not all have obeyed the gospel. And I think we've lost some of this, this power when we preach the gospel. The gospel is a message to be obeyed. And the obedience to the gospel is to believe. To believe. So there's a hearing without ears, but he, he says in verse 14 that there is a hearing with ears. There's a hearing of, of those who have ears to hear. And he says, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? What is belief? We've already decided it's not merely mental assent to the truths of Christ, although faith is in the truths of Christ. There's no way to get around the truths of Christ and faith. Faith is not some ethereal feeling or situation that you have in your, in your mind and you think, all right, well, I have faith in some, in some object out there in the sky. Faith is in the truths of Jesus Christ and in Christ, who he is and what he has done. It's not mere assent to these facts, though, it's trust, it's dependence, it's abandoning all hope of providing your own righteousness for, for falling in line with hoping with his righteousness. That's what obeying the gospel is. And as we look at this text, it would seem that it's a miracle. It would seem in verse 16 that it's very common not to believe. What does he say from Isaiah? Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Specifically, thinking about the Jews that Paul is referencing all throughout Romans 9 and 10, that there are those who, who had all of the things and they didn't believe. But it helps us to see even more clearly the power and the mercy and the grace of God to save sinners. I, I said at the beginning that I really 
enjoyed looking at all of the ways that people called upon the name of the Lord. And Don read this morning for our call to worship uh, one that's my favorite. Blind Bartimaeus is, is in Jericho, outside of the city. He's blind, he's a beggar, and he's sitting on the roadside. And he hears that Jesus is coming by. And I love what he says, because, because this is the work of Christ in him. He heard the truth of Christ. He believed it. And what does he do? It says in, Matthew, in Mark 10, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He heard the truth of the gospel, and he believed that he was one who needed mercy. And he cried out to Christ. He called on the name of the Lord. And everyone's saying, be quiet. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. We see what Paul is talking about in real time. And there are countless examples. You think of your own life in the way that the Lord and his sovereign will has graciously saved you from your sin. That someone came and preached to you. Or maybe you heard it on the radio, or maybe you had a Sunday school teacher, or maybe uh, you, you read it in the scriptures. Someone came and preached to you, and you heard with the ears of faith, and you believed, and you, you, you put all of your your eggs in that basket. You burned all the other bridges and you called upon the name of the Lord for mercy and he saved you because he says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Church, this is our great hope. He's offering us this free gift that was not free to him, but he gives it to us freely. And we rejoice. But not only do we rejoice, we go on as we rejoice, preaching the gospel to anyone who will hear it. Because the sun came up today so that the gospel would go out to one of our brothers and sisters who will believe because he has promised it's going to happen. Let's pray.